Would you pray with me? Father, I trust that the song we just sang is the cry of our heart, that to know you, to live for you, is more valuable, more important than all the trappings of this earth. Father, we are so easily distracted by by the good gifts that you have given us as as a, a human race. And yet so often we can be enamored with the good things and really hide our eyes from that which is best. Father, help us to see that you are the surpassing glory, that there is nothing, there is no one that satisfies the soul like you do. We can pursue our jobs, we can pursue fame, we can pursue fortune and status and all these things that the earth provides, but Father, only you satisfy Your word tells us as much, Uh, but Father, sometimes it's difficult for us to wrap our minds truly around that, that you are our greatest and highest joy. So Father, we ask that today you would help us to find our joy and our hope in you. We thank you for your word that reveals to us who you are. You are the God of all creation. You are the supreme one of all time and space. You are the one who grants us the goodness of rain that gives us food to eat. You are the one who grants us seasons that uh, give us uh, the, the variety of life. You are the one who gives us the, the ability to love one another, and to have relationships. Father, you are the the source of all that is good. Father, help us to worship you for who you are today. Help us to worship you for all that you have done. And Father, we ask that as you continue to use your spirit to stir in our soul, Lord, help us to love you more today than we did yesterday. Help us to love you more even yet tomorrow. Father, whatever might come our way, help us to put our faith and trust in you. Because, Father, sometimes life does go well and and is easy, uh, but oftentimes life is hard. Things don't go as we expect. We get that diagnosis or we get that bad news or we lose a job or, or whatever else might come our way. Lord, there's lots of Lots of evil in this world, lots of bad circumstances in this world. Help us to trust you in those as well. Use those, those difficult times in our lives to draw us to your throne, to uh, put us on our knees to pray more, to worship you more. And Father, though the, the difficulties of this world might not ever get resolved in our lifetime, you promise us in your word that you will make all things new that you will wipe away the tears from our eyes. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to live faithfully to you, that we would use the time that you've given us in this world to, uh, to be godly people in an ungodly world, to shine as lights in darkness. Lord, help us to uh, faithfully study your word and to not only know what it says, but to live it out, to apply it to our lives and to help others to do the same. 
Father, we ask that as we uh, dig deeper into your word this morning, that you would use it in our lives, and not only today, but in the days, weeks, months, and years to come, and that you would be honored and glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've been looking together at uh, one of the three marks of a disciple. Uh, the first of the three that we have adopted is, well, we're disciples who worship, grow, and serve. So we're looking at worship, specifically uh, the corporate gathering. It's true, we are to be worshipers 24-7. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to have our hearts fixed on him all the time, and that in itself is a form of worship. But what we're talking about is, as we gather together, we worshipers uh, worship in a in a way that is greater than the equal of its parts. Does that make sense? Did I say that right? That yes, we worship individually, but it's magnified as we gather together to worship on a Sunday morning. God has designed it that way. He's designed it that we would worship him throughout our daily lives, but then gather together and that worship would swell as we uh, as we unite together in singing, as we unite together under the study of God's word. He's commanded us to worship. It's not only commanded it, he's given us exactly what we need to be able to worship the way he wants us to worship him. And then God not only enables our worship, what's most shocking to me is he accepts our worship. Because any time that we worship, whether it's individually or whether it's as a corporate gathering, it's not perfect, not even close. And he is, right? So why should he accept our worship? Well, he does so because he sees us as his children. For all who have received Jesus through faith uh, and repentance, who have turned to Jesus, he receives our worship because he sees us as his child. It's like a parent would look at that terrible first grade artwork project and say this is worthy of the refrigerator and really it's worthy for the trash can right but it's what our child has done for us and so we love it and we uh, maybe you have scrapbooks or boxes full of that stuff why it's not because of the quality of the artwork it's because of who gave it to you and that's how God accepts our worship as well in our series, we started with the source of worship, which must be salvation, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God is the point of our salvation, and it's provided through Jesus Christ alone, that righteous one who never sinned, suffered as though he had committed the sins of the world. Amazing. Amazing that God would do that for us that he would pay the price for us through Jesus Christ. Then we looked at the sentinel of worship, that guard, those guardrails that keep us focused on God rather than worshiping any way we please. That's, that's not acceptable. Uh, we started with uh, the, the second command of, of the big 10 commandments, not to make any uh, graven images, not to make any images or worship any images of God. Why? Because God cannot be worshiped that way. Uh, there are ways that we can worship him, and there are ways that we might think we can worship him that we really cannot. And so we use the scripture as our soul guide for worship. And then last week, we looked at the souls who worship, uh, and we're in that same verse. So if you have your Bibles, join me in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, 
our passage is verse 16. We looked at basically the first half of it last week. Uh, the souls who worship are the ones who uh, teach and admonish one another. As we worship God, yes, it's vertical in one sense, in the primary sense, but also it's horizontal that we would encourage one another through our worship. So the, the rest of Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 is about the songs of worship, and that's where we are this morning. So follow along with me if you would. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let's pray. Father, we do want our hearts to be in tune with what your spirit is doing amongst us this morning. So we, we want to worship you well this morning, even as we go through this verse. So guide our hearts, our thoughts, guide our very lives in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we noted that worship in song uh, must be God's word richly planted in our hearts. That it, there, it must be word saturated, saturated? That's not the right word, saturated, there it is. The word must fully saturate our worship. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, our worship must be others directed, teaching and admonishing one another. And so today we break down the rest of the verse in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Uh, that little phrase, in all wisdom, goes back to the word-saturated concept of last week. The songs that we sing as a church must be theological. In fact, uh, that's quite appropriate that we list that first because that is the most important criterion that we have as we choose songs to sing as God's people in our worship service. By theological, I mean theologically accurate. Now, just be open and honest and clear. We are better at choosing new to us songs that are theologically accurate than we are familiar songs. And here's what I mean. One of my favorite hymns is My Jesus, I Love Thee. How many of you, if we didn't put any words up, you could sing most of that song? It's very, very singable uh, in its melody. The melody is, is very singable. The, the text just flows off the tongue. But the last stanza of that song is a problem if we're going to be theological. The last stanza. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. If we keep thinking that we have a mansion waiting for us, we are not thinking theologically, are we? Now, that word comes from one single verse in the New Testament. Uh, what's ironic to me is that the very first English translation of the whole Bible got it right. Uh, you know, we support uh, Isaiah Peterson as a missionary uh, with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He's uh, translating the, the Bible into languages that have not yet had the Bible in their own language. And I, I love supporting him. I love what he's doing. Um, John Wycliffe, the, the, the name of his mission board, uh, is named after John Wycliffe because John Wycliffe gave us the first English Bible in 1382. 
That was a little while ago, wasn't it? Here is the Wycliffe translation of John chapter 14, verse 2. In the house of my father, yes, there's actually a D in there. In the house of my father been many dwellings, if anything less had I said to you, for I go to make ready to you a place. Now that's a little awkward, but what did he say about mansions? Nothing. He said, in my father's house are dwellings. And that's the correct word. Now, the Latin uh, translation uses the word manse, which sounds like mansion, but means dwelling. But for some reason, some later translations named it a mansion that we get. And they didn't quite get it right because this poor doctrine has developed of get saved, get a mansion. Why wouldn't you want to get saved? You get to live in a mansion. Well, now, I'm not suggesting that the Father's house is anything less than a mansion. All right? Read the descriptors of heaven. It's going to make every mansion here look like a shack, all right? But what I'm saying is the point is not the mansion. The point is you have a room in God's mansion. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a place for you in the Father's house. Why? Because God is the central point of heaven. So the the first part of that verse, uh, talking about mansions of glory and endless delight, not a fan because it supports a poor doctrine, but that's not even the bad part of this stanza. If you know the rest of the stanza, it gets much worse. I'll sing with a glittering crown on my brow. No, you will not. Why not? Well, for a couple reasons. First of all, when Jesus talks about giving us crowns as rewards, he really wasn't talking about glittery golden crowns like King Charles might wear. Uh, He was talking about wreaths. That's the awards that the the first century Greek people had for for athletic events. You would would receive these these crowns, these these wreaths of rewards. But even if they were golden and glittery and diamond-studded crowns, what does the Word of God tell us about what we will do with those crowns? Thank you. We will take them off and we will throw them at Jesus' feet. That is the theologically correct understanding of our crowns in heaven. And unfortunately, I've memorized it wrong that I'm not sure I could fix that phrase. Uh, There is a a hymnal, fantastically, it's called the Baptist Hymnal. The 2008 version of the Baptist Hymnal has adjusted the fourth stanza, stanza to say this, and singing thy praises before thee I'll bow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. That is so much better, isn't it? Because it's theologically accurate. All that to say, once we establish in our repertoire a song that's not quite theologically correct, it's really hard to fix. Because even if we change those words and put them up on the screen, in fact, I think I did go in and change the words in in our software, um, I'm still probably going to sing the wrong words because I know the song and I'm not going to be looking at the screen and you'll probably be with me. Now, is is that little theological point terribly important? Not really. I I mean, if you have a misunderstanding of John 14, verse 2, and we sing about it a little bit wrong, is that really going to shatter your worldview and really cause someone to stumble in Christ? No, probably not. In the grand scheme of things, that particular issue is not all that problematic. The problem is that music drives words deeper into us than a spoken word or a word that has been read. 
So there are hymns that are actually quite, uh, quite dangerous for the church, such as hymns that talk of um, praying to angels or, or pray, praying to Mary or, or honoring uh, really effectively anything that's not God, right? Those are actually far more dangerous and harmful to the church. Like I said earlier, we're better at choosing new to us songs that are theologically accurate than we are with familiar songs. In part, that's because familiar songs have a nostalgia. Unfortunately, nostalgia is a terrible guide for worship. Our, our songs need to be theological, not nostalgic. So again, as by theological, I mean as a baseline, they need to be biblically accurate. Now, what I don't mean in saying that they need to be theological, I don't mean that every song that we sing must be robust in its theology. Um, God is so good. God is so good. How many of you know that song? Yeah, and you could sing the rest because the rest is all the same words. Uh, it's a very, very simple song, right? Or, or I love you, Lord. Uh, when we lived in Texas, we were in the same church for about eight years, and probably a third of the, the morning service is closed with I love you, Lord. Uh, the, the, at that church, the song leader would pick a closing song during the service, and, and the, the, the joke upstairs where they were running the, the screen and the sound was, um, was which song is he going to choose this week? Uh, and, and we often closed with I love you, but it's a simple song, but very, very thought-provoking, isn't it? Sometimes we need to have a little less in a song because that's what we can handle in the moment, and that's fine. The, the, the issue with, with more simple songs like that is if our entire repertoire were songs of very shallow and simple uh, songs, we would have a, a, a problem theologically as well. Um, the same actually could be true of complex songs. If we had too many complex songs or, or theologically robust songs, uh, that would be a hindrance to our worship as well because you just simply can't process all of that. Uh, another of my favorite hymns, and this, as I say that, this isn't supposed to be about me and my favorites, uh, but another one of my favorite hymns is In Christ Alone. If you take just that first phrase, In Christ Alone, and you do a New Testament study of all the things that we have just in Jesus, I could put together easily, without a whole lot of problem, a six-month sermon series just on that phrase to unpack all the ways that Jesus is our all. The, the stanza continues, he is my light, my strength, my song. Now remember the word Christ is the same word as Messiah from the Old Testament, the promised one from the Old Testament. So if you took the, the bulk of the Psalms that are looking forward to the Messiah, how much scripture do we have talking about Jesus that we could expound upon for years and years? all tidily written in that tiny little phrase, he's my light, my strength, my song, my comforter, my all in all. Just the first stanza of In Christ Alone would be years worth of sermons if we were to unpack all the scripture that refers, that is referenced in that 
one stanza. It's a very, very packed full song. The second stanza doesn't get any lighter. The second stanza is about the incarnation and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. The incarnation that, uh, that Jesus came to earth uh, fully God and fully man. The stanza goes, in Christ alone who took on flesh fullness of God in helpless babe. That, my friends, is a, a phrase that there are, are whole denominations of, of people, the Mormons specifically, will not sing that stanza because they do not believe that Jesus is fully God. The second half of, the, of that stanza, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. There are other denominations, other groups of people that won't sing this stanza because they don't believe in God's wrath, although scripture is quite clear. God is angry with sin, and that wrath needs to be appeased. And take the rest of the song, and it, from, it takes us through the resurrection and the freedom that we have in Christ to live a life pleasing to him until he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. That is a very, very loaded song. And if all the songs that we sang were that rich and deep, we would just simply never process it all. If you want a good read about um, music of the church, how we should choose songs, how songs impact the body of Christ corporately as well as individuals, uh, there's a, a book by Chris Anderson called Theology That Sticks. Theology That Sticks. Uh, those of you who are at senior high camp, Chris Anderson, that's the same Chris Anderson. Uh, he was the speaker uh, that week at camp. And so I got to meet him and know him a little bit. Uh, being biblically accurate is the foundation of choosing congregational songs. But it's not the only thing that we take into consideration. It can't be. In all wisdom, singing psalms. What are the psalms? Well, I don't think, first of all, that Paul is making three required categories, as he says, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I'm not, I don't believe that he's trying to say that you must perfectly identify psalms and have at least one of them in your service and you must have a hymn in your service and you must have a spiritual song uh, but what I think he's doing here is is, um, is encouraging a variety in our singing and we had quite a variety this morning did you pay attention to uh, the, the songs that Pastor Dan had chosen for us um, I do believe that Paul is reinforcing this whole uh, with all wisdom uh, by limiting our songs to uh, worship songs to songs that in one way are about God or about the Christian life. Uh, psalms are at a minimum uh, the 150 psalms that we have in the Old Testament. Um, it could also be used for as a term to cover all the songs that are found in the Bible. And, and the psalms themselves are incredibly varied. Here's Psalm 150, the last psalm in our Psalter. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with a tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, that sounds like an energetic thing. If we were to do all those things... Um, we'd need to find some more instrumentalists and some more instruments. But not all the psalms are like that. 
Psalm 130 is a song of lament or of sorrow. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Psalm goes on with this cry out to God. A very different sense, very different feeling in Psalm 130 than we have in Psalm 150. Uh, so the Psalms are uh, just straight out of Scripture. Uh, they cover a, a, a wide range of topics, a wide range of moods, a wide range of situations. Another key aspect of the Psalms are the congregational nature of the Psalms. The Psalms were written to be sung. Now, uh, if you read the, the title verse, remember before verse 1 in the Psalms is a little title verse. Uh, it might be as short as, of David, uh, letting us know who wrote it. But sometimes it gives instruction uh, for the choir master. Uh, some of these psalms were written specifically for the choirs to be sung, but even then, the choirs were to sing them for the congregation. Why? So the congregation could learn to sing them. So I talked at length last week about the one another aspect of singing in our worship service. I'm not going to beat that topic down uh, some more today, but the, the psalms by nature were designed for the masses to sing, for, the, for God's people to sing. So to say that the church, uh, for, for churches who relegate their music to just a handful of people up front while the congregation participates little or at all is to stand at odds with, with what singing has always been in worship to God, and that's the people worshiping God as a whole. In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns. What's the difference between a hymn and a psalm? Sometimes not much. Uh, a hymn is a God-focused, stanzaic, metrical lyric of literary worth. And I know there's more to that definition I learned in college, but I couldn't find my notes. And, well, Dr. Van Hooser is with the Lord now. I can't call him up and ask him anymore. But let's break down the parts of the definition I do remember. A hymn is God-focused. Uh, a, a, a hymn, properly speaking, is either about God, who he is, what he's done, or it's to God, from us, to God. Uh, a, a hymn is stanzaic. It has stanzas, uh, multiple stanzas, as opposed to an aria, which I know all of you are quite familiar with arias. No, probably not. Uh, but an aria would be from an opera, and it would go on and on and on and not really have much repetition in the music. It's really hard to learn songs like that. Uh, a, a hymn is going to be one that has a repetition of the music so that it's uh, more attainable. Uh, a metrical lyric uh, just simply means that it has a regular meter. Now, they don't always sound like it, but if, uh, if you were to count out the, the number of syllables per stanza, you'll, you'll find a pattern in all of the hymns that we sing. Why is that? Because it's easier to sing that way. Of literary worth, this is not to say that all hymns are highbrow, but a true hymn is not going to use common slang or poor grammar. A key aspect of hymns is that they are singable, that they are musically simple or accessible. A mighty fortress is our God is one of them. Uh, very simple melody, simple rhythms, uh, takes us through a, a variety of texts of scripture uh, and uh, has stood the test of time. Martin Luther wrote that. 
Uh, and uh, what, he's about 500 years old, if he'd still be alive, he's a little over 500 years old. Uh, so that hymn has definitely stood the test of time. Hymns, by definition, have this kind of simplicity that are, um, they're, they're just singable. Uh, at least they're supposed to be. There are lots of really good songs out there. There are lots of really good songs that perhaps you know. There are lots of good songs that I know that I would love to sing with my church family. But they're too low and they're too high all at the same time. And you know what I'm talking about. There are songs because uh, they're written by people who have fantastic vocal ranges. They write them in the range that they can sing, but us normal folk just can't. And so even though they might have a fantastic message and fit under the theological filter that we've talked about already, uh, by not being singable, uh, they do not make their way into our repertoire. My apologies to the handful of you who can sing those songs, but since we can't as a whole, we have to pass on them. I used to think that the definition of a hymn was just a Christian song that was boring. Part of it was because in the church that I grew up in, we sang all of our hymns at about the same excruciatingly slow pace and about the same mezzo-piano blah volume, and they were kind of boring to sing. Then I met Bob and Rita Berghardt. Anyone here know Bob and Rita? Anyone ever heard of Bob Gardner? You have if you've been to camp because you go into Gardner Chapel. He was the first uh, camp director up at camp. Uh, Rita was one of his daughters. He had, I think, eight daughters, and they have a great reunion uh, uh, every so often up at camp, but none of them have the last name of Gardner anymore because he only had daughters. Uh, anyway, Rita is the first piano player and organist that I had ever met that actually put variety into the music. Uh, and, and I know that, noticed that sometimes uh, the music was a little livelier, a little faster than our normal clip. Some songs she would play parts of it louder while backing off of other parts. And as a young aspiring piano player myself, I wondered, why is she doing that? Because I look in the hymnal and there's no crescendo and there's no decrescendo telling you to get louder and get softer and there are no tempo markings telling you to go faster or go slower. Why is she doing this? And then I started paying attention to the words. And when you pay attention to the words, some words demand something different than other words do. For instance, what language can I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. The text of O Sacred Head Now Wounded requires a different feel than crown him with many crowns, right? And she brought that out in the music, and I noticed. Congregational singing becomes much more powerful when the music is well-matched to the text. For instance, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, you can sing, Jesus loves me, to the tune of Happy Birthday. But it's really distracting, isn't it? I don't recommend it. That would be an example of a poorly matched melody with a text. Some melodies, e even in songs that you and I would know, 
some of those melodies don't pair up very well with the text. And, and some of that is because back in the day, uh, most of our hymns were written by people who were con concerned about the text. They were pastors, they were theologians trying to uh, communicate certain doctrinal truths, and then they would offload the music to uh, a music that was already out there and, and fit the certain rhythm. I talked about how hymns have a, a meter, have a, a set meter. Well, so do the melodies, and so you can take Jesus Loves Me and sing it to Happy Birthday, or you can take Amazing Grace and put it to Joy to the World. That's another weird one. Um, when the music is well-matched to the text, it makes it that much more powerful, and we strive to do that as we select songs. In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns. I can't believe I tried to summarize a semester's worth of hymnology into just seven minutes in a sermon, but... Anyway, and spiritual song. Psalms and hymns by their very nature are going to be songs that believers sing for generations. If I recall correctly, I don't have the music in front of me, but we sang gladly what I leave behind me. That's actually a very old text that has survived time. The melody has not, or maybe the melody wasn't quite as good, and so someone paired a melody to it that fits the text better than the original, and we sang that together this morning. Uh, spiritual songs, however, are kind of a less specific category, uh, more about the Christian life. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, would fit that spiritual song. Um, it's about Christ, but really only tangentially. It's more about the Christian experience of, of walking with Christ. I, I find it interesting that there are entire sections of Christianity that have restricted congregations to singing only the psalms. Have you heard of a church or been part of a church like that, that only sang psalms? Um, my parents grew up in a church that historically had been like that. So they had the Psalter in, in the pews where every song in there was straight out of, the, out of the psalms and they didn't even do much work to reword it so that it, it flows. Because, you know, as you read the psalms, Poetically, they don't make a whole lot of sense in English. They may have made perfect sense in, in their original Hebrew, but in English, they don't quite flow off the tongue. Uh, these Psalters, at least the Psalter that I remember from my parents' church growing up, uh, was, they were not easy songs to sing. Uh, and I'm not sure how theologians, because again, it was a whole arm of Christianity believed that the only songs that the church could sing were the Psalms, how they could get past Colossians 3.16 without singing more songs than just the Psalms of the Old Testament. Uh, clearly God did not have any such restriction in mind, hence this verse. There's also some practical reasons we choose the songs that we do. Uh, do we have the instrumentalists who can play this song and play it uh, in, in a way that, that helps us lead? Do we have the leaders who can lead it? Uh, other, other thoughts, are there is there beauty in the song? Uh, there are some songs that, yes, they have truth, but they're just not connecting that truth to the heart because they, they lack in some sort of beauty or artistic quality. Our verse ends with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Our congregational singing, we might pick the best songs ever, but if your heart as the singer isn't focused on God in doing so, then that's no longer worship, is it? 
God wants us to minister to each other, singing a variety of songs with our hearts, always thanking God. God commands, demands, and deserves that we worship him, that we give of ourselves as we gather together to sing praises to his name, to uh, study the word of God together. And yes, this, is, this has definitely been a different study for us. Uh, being very topical in nature. I'm looking forward to next week. We'll get back into Philippians chapter 2. But I do believe this has been a good, useful diversion from our book study in Philippians just to to look at the framework of worship that God has given us uh, so that we might be reminded to stay within it, that we might worship him the way he is due. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of song how it connects us on a deeper level to the truth of, of you, to the truth of, from your word, uh, how it connects us in ways uh, that, that other means don't. We, we remember songs so much more readily than we remember really anything else. And that's the power of music that you have designed. Lord, help us to use music as, as the body of Christ in a way that encourages the saints, that blesses you. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we strive to worship you well to do just that. So Father, we thank you for the encouragement from your word this morning. We ask that you would use it in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.